Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Ben Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello and welcome to my podcast for today. Unstoppable is the name of our series from the book of Acts, and this is the second message. Katrina and I went to three Broadway plays over the years. Uh, Actually, the first one was not on Broadway, but in London's West End Theater District. We went to see Phantom of the Opera. On Broadway, we actually saw the live versions of Superman and Mary Poppins. The thing that impressed both of us the most was the staging. I mean, it was almost magical how the sets would fly in and fly out and rise up and sink down and spin around to create new rooms or new scenes or new worlds. I can't imagine the ingenuity and the engineering and the financial investment that goes into setting the stage. Well, none of it can compare to the job that the New Testament writer Luke did in the book of Acts chapter 1 as he set the stage for the creation of the church. The first 11 verses of the book of Acts uh, is a historical and visual, it's an uplifting, instructive, and, well, perfect setting of the stage for what is going to come. It is such a perfect passage that I think it could only have been written by a brilliant man under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so let's begin, if you have your Bibles, by reading these first 11 verses together. Last time we looked at Acts chapter 1 verse 1, and particularly at that word began, but now let's go on from there to the first 11 verses. The book of Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up from before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So there's the passage, and it's Luke's summarized account of the 40 days that Jesus tarried on earth between his resurrection and his ascension, or his return to heaven. Have you noticed that the earthly life of Christ is perfectly balanced? He entered the world in a miraculous way. He left it miraculously. He came down from heaven, and he returned to heaven. And think of this. Think of this. Jesus began his earthly ministry by spending 40 days in the wastelands of Judea where he was tempted by the devil. And he ended his earthly ministry by spending 40 days with the disciples before returning to heaven. Jesus began and ended his ministry by a special period of 40 days. He was baptized and then he spent 40 days in the wilderness. He rose from the dead and spent 40 days from the disciples, and afterwards they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. There is a symmetry and a balance to the life of Jesus Christ, and we can see it in a thousand ways. Well, as I read the first 11 verses of this book of Acts, I think of it as Jesus giving his disciples and all of us five special final parting gifts. First, he gave us many convincing proofs of his resurrection. Verse 3 says, After his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. The reality of the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was so convincingly proved to these 12 disciples, these uneducated Galileans, these untrained soldiers, unsophisticated fishermen, that they devoted every day of the rest of their lives to this message. They faced the lash, the chain, the prisons, the rigors of travel, the hunger, the thirst, the persecution, the rejection of the Jewish state and the Roman Empire, and they did it without wavering. They never did live again in Galilee. They took their families to the four corners of the earth, Peter to Italy, Thomas to India, Philip to Africa, Matthew to Ethiopia, Simon the Zealot to Persia, and not a single one of them ever expressed again so much as a thin line of doubt they even died for their faith and the truthfulness of the bodily resurrection of Jesus in Nazareth. There is no way to explain the existence of the church in this world without the sacrifice of these 12 men and there's no way to explain the sacrifice of these 12 men without the resurrection. He proved himself alive to them by many infallible proofs. Days before, they had all been craven cowards, and now suddenly, they were unstoppable. Second, Jesus used these 40 days to provide additional insights into the nature of his kingdom. Verse 3 says, After his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The teaching ministry of Jesus was progressive. 
there were some things the disciples simply could not understand until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. They couldn't understand it until the events were behind them. Jesus hinted at some of those things, but even on the eve of his death, they simply could not conceive of the possibility that the Jewish Messiah would be murdered. After his resurrection, they undoubtedly had a lot of questions. Why did that happen? Why did you put us through the awful trauma of that weekend? Why did you allow yourself to endure it? And according to Luke 24, Jesus went back into the Old Testament and he explained to them that the Messiah had to die and he had to rise again to provide for the salvation of the world. And Peter and the others finally understood this. In fact, in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter said. He understood this. He said, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Now, just a few weeks before, Peter had been clueless about all of that. Where did, he, where did he learn about God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge? Where did he learn about the meaning of the cross and the significance of the resurrection? Only after the resurrection could Jesus explain all of that in a way that they could really understand, and he needed 40 days to orient his followers with this new layer of information. It was his 40-day postgraduate course for the disciples, and Peter never forgot a word of it. Many years later, this was still his message in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. In fact, much of the information we have in the New Testament I think, began to be revealed to the apostles during this 40-day period. Third, Jesus gave us in this passage a global mission, a worldwide work. Verse 4 says, On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Now, I want to pause here. There's a little something special about Luke's mentioning of Jesus eating with his disciples. I wonder what they were eating. It really tells us so much about our Lord's resurrection body. And I think about our own future resurrection bodies. The glorified, risen body of the Lord Jesus could still do ordinary things, like eat and drink and talk and teach and sit around a table and have fellowship. And I think this tells us something about our future lives in heaven. So over this meal, Jesus gave them a command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me talk about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine what came into the apostles' minds when they heard that, can you? Apparently, there was some curious experience awaiting them in the near future, and Jesus called it the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But the disciples still had a lot of questions, and there was still so much they didn't understand. Apparently, they still could not conceive of Jesus leave them, leaving them again. I mean, here's the way they were thinking. I think that maybe this was what was going through Peter's mind or Thomas's mind. Well, I understand it now. Jesus came to establish the kingdom to Israel, 
But first he had to die and arise from the dead as a sacrifice to atone for sin. I hadn't understood that before, but now, in the light of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus showed us, it makes perfect sense. Now that he has provided atonement, now he is ready to take his throne and rule the world from Israel, as we know the Messiah will do. But why is he taking so long? It's been three or four weeks since the resurrection, and he still hasn't done anything to shake things up. The high priest is still in the temple. Pontius Pilate is still the governor of Judea. Tiberius is still the emperor living in Rome. What's taking so long? So they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And verse 7 says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set up by his own authority. In other words, yes, I'm going to do all of that. But the timing isn't what you might have expected. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria unto the ends of the earth. He was explaining to them one final thing, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel, but that it would be in the future. And only God the Father knew when in the future, but between now and then there would be a special age, a dispensation, a period of time, in which his people would take the message of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up to heaven. And that brought to a finish our Lord's earthly teaching in the flesh. And that is still where we are. We are still in the process of living in the church age, taking the gospel to the world. Recently, while I did my exercises, I listened to a chapel service from Dallas Theological Seminary. The speaker was Dr. Rodney Orr, who is dean of the Washington, D.C. campus of the seminary, and his topic was, The Harvest is Plentiful. Dr. Orr explained how he had come to realize the personal command that we have in verse 8. He said that when he was a student at Purdue University, his best friend, Lloyd, had mentored him and discipled him and was helping him to grow in the Christian faith. One day, he said, Lloyd, ask me, how would you like to share this message with someone else? I said to him, you know, I'm enjoying my Christian life, but I really don't want to share it with anybody else. Lloyd said, well, just come with me. I'll do the sharing. And so they visited a friend, and Lloyd patiently explained the gospel but the young man didn't want to give his life to Christ. But Lloyd kept saying, well, here's some information. If you do want to make that decision, this would be good for you to know. And the experience of seeing his friend sharing the gospel deeply impressed Dr. Orr. And he prayed, Lord, if there's anyone you want me to talk to, just let me know. Well, a few days later, they were sitting in the cafeteria. And one of the students, he said, stood up and said to those around him, you know, I would kill myself if I didn't think that this school and this society would be glad to have me gone. And the students around him sort of laughed and told him to sit down and shut up. But Dr. Orr, he wasn't a doctor then, but Rodney, felt that he should go over and talk to him. He went over to the young man and he said, can I share my testimony about Jesus with you? And the young man said, yeah, yeah. So the fellow listened and that day he received Christ as Savior and began growing in his faith. Dr. Orr said, I began looking at my friends and my classmates 
And I began wondering, is the only reason that they're not accepting the Lord Jesus because no one has taken the time to share a simple message with them? Well, that's the question posed to us by Acts chapter 1 verse 8, this great, great commission missionary verse. Notice that Jesus prescribed his command according to concentric geographical zones. The gospel was to begin in Jerusalem, spread to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then progress on to the furthest corners of the earth. And that verse also, incidentally, gives us the progress of the story as it unfolds through the book of Acts. Now, just think with me, think with me how remarkable all of this is. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, a stonemason, knowing full well that his kingdom's work was planned in advance in the deepest councils of the Godhead, appeared for three years in a small, impoverished mountain region with villages dotted around a lake, and he preached, and then he allowed himself to be killed, and afterward he told his twelve traumatized followers to take what had just happened and to use it to change the world, and then he left. And today, 2,000 years later, we're still at it, and we're closer to finishing the task than any generation since then, all because of the foreplanning of God the Father, the sacrifice of God the Son, and the empowerment of God the Spirit. Now, the next thing Jesus gave us was an ascended Lord. Verse 9 says, After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the second time that this writer Luke has described the ascension of Christ. He ended his gospel, and he began his book of Acts by describing the ascension of Christ. So at the very end of the gospel of Luke in chapter 24 and verse 50, he said, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually in the temple praising God. I've come to believe that the ascension of Christ has been badly overlooked in our Bible studies and sermons. On this particular day, Jesus returned to heaven. Oh, the applause he must have received, the fanfare, the happiness, the joy among the angels as he resumed his place on the throne. He rose physically and bodily from the grave, and so I think that we can infer that the throne in heaven is physical and real, not just a symbol or a visualization. And there's a lot in the Bible about this. In John 10, 28, Jesus simply put it this way, I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. And the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and following, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Boy, there's a lot there to unpack. And there's an incredible verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. He who descended 
is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Colossians 3 tells us to set our hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, After he had provided purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Peter, who saw the ascension with his own eyes, said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, He has gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission under him. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see the Lamb upon the throne being worshipped by every living being in the heavenly realms and getting ready to unleash the events of the last days. So Jesus is our ascended Lord. What's he doing in heaven? He is overseeing the universe. He is overseeing and guiding and directing and accomplishing the work of his church. He is interceding for us. He is our advocate before the Father. He is preparing a place for us and preparing to unleash the events leading to his return. So Jesus returned to heaven not to rest or to retire, but to engage in activity directly affecting the affairs of this world and the affairs of his church and the course of history. And that leads us to the final thing. He not only gave us convincing proofs of his resurrection, additional truth about his kingdom, a worldwide work to do, and a heavenly advocate for us at the right hand of the Father, he finally left us with a promise of his return. Verse 10 says, The disciples were looking intently into the skies he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These two men were undoubtedly angels. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now notice those words, in like manner, or in the same way. He went up, he will come down. He went up into the clouds of glory, and he will come back in the clouds of glory. He went up from the Mount of Olives, and according to the book of Zechariah, his feet will again stand on the Mount of Olives, we are told that his feet will stand where he stood when he comes in power and splendor and glory at the moment of his return. Until, they, until then, we have a lot of work to do. It is an unceasing work, and it is unstoppable. I hope the first 11 verses of the book of Acts have motivated you. They set the stage for the entire book of Acts, but they also set the stage for our work and for our labor for him. They're for you and for me. These five gifts he gave us just as much as they applied to the original disciples. And they send us into all of the world to share Christ with the nations and with the neighbors in the power of the Holy Spirit until he returns again in the clouds of glory. Maranatha. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll continue on in the book of Acts in the next episode. This podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media and edited by Elijah Rowe. Today's music is by my friend Jordan Davis. 
May the Lord Jesus Christ bless you and advocate for you and fill you with his presence until we meet again.